You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. To all the members of the press, to this press conference, on the forthcoming assembly of 10,000 for world peace to be held in Hyderabad. My name is Ram Srivastav, and with me here is Mona Cosman. We will both be co-moderating today's press conference. We are here to announce the assembly of 10,000 advanced transcendental meditation practitioners from 132 countries demonstrating scientifically proven technologies of consciousness that create peace, not just for the individual, but for the whole world. Wars begin in the minds of men. Hence, it is the minds of men that the defenses of peace must be constructed. This is the first sentence to the preamble of UNESCO's constitution. And this reminds me of the words of our founder, His Holiness Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, who called out the role of India to be Jagat Guru Bharat, to be the guiding light for the whole world to live in peace and harmony. His teachings are not just a philosophy, but a practical way to adopt these Vedic technologies that come from India, that have the power to create lasting peace in the world family of nations. There has been enough scientific evidence over the last five decades proving that the root cause solution to all conflicts lies in the Vedic technologies of India. This is why our speakers today are scientists. They understand how these technologies work, the depth of research behind it, and the mechanism of establishing a sustained state of peace for the whole world for less cost than one day of war. Now it is a pleasure for me to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Tony Nader. Dr. Nader is the chairman of the Global Union of Scientists for Peace, an organization of leading scientists and world leaders dedicated to the cause of peace. Dr. Nader is a medical doctor trained at Harvard University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. With a doctorate from MIT in brain and cognitive science, he's a globally recognized expert in the science of consciousness and human development, and is the successor to His Holiness Maharshi Mahesh Yogi as the head of the Transcendental Meditation Organizations in more than 100 countries. Dr. Nader's empirical research in neurochemistry and neuroendocrinology has been widely published in many peer-reviewed scholarly journals. He has presented the central importance of consciousness and its development for all areas of life at many academic and governmental institutions worldwide, such as Stanford, the Harvard Business School, and the House of Commons in the United Kingdom. With this, with his podcast, and books, including the forthcoming, Consciousness is All There Is, How Understanding and Experiencing Consciousness Will Transform Your Life, 
and frequent online discussions with leading thinkers, Dr. Nader is expanding our understanding of the relationship between consciousness and physiology and the possibility of developing full human potential. So with this, it is my pleasure to invite Dr. Nader to please speak to us. It's a great joy to be with you and thank you for attending this important conference. I'd like to start by paying homage to the Vedic tradition of masters and teachers who have given us this uh, knowledge of integration of life. Through his divinity, Swami Brahmananda Saraswati, Jagat Guru of Jyotirmat, and his great disciple, His Holiness Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the ancient knowledge of Veda and Vedic literature and the traditions and technologies of this knowledge have been introduced to the world in a wide way and have been subjected to scientific research as today's language is a language of science. We want to know what works, what doesn't work, and also how things work. And so Maharishi was very clear and inspiring to all the scientists to subject in every possible way the knowledge and science of consciousness from the Vedic tradition to rigorous scientific study and scientific understanding. And that's how today we have actually spirituality as a science, consciousness as a science, and the technologies that improve human consciousness for the individual and for society as a true science of life, demonstrated in its effectiveness and its in theoretical understanding. So our discussions today, to simplify it, will be on two general categories to general levels, which I like you to keep in mind. One is, does it work? And two, how does it work? Because these are the things that scientists want to know. You do something, does it work or it doesn't work? Once you know it works, then you want to understand how is it possible that it works? And in any scientific framework or scientific theory, these are the two things that scientists look for. The effect in the lab or in the human lab or whatever level of demonstration we are doing. And then how is it possible that it could work? Particularly in our case, where we are talking about something that on the surface level is intangible, which is consciousness. Because when we say we are looking at objects, we are looking at different aspects of reality, we see them through our senses and we are sure everything exists as it is, as our senses show them to us. We see the sun rising in the sky from the east goes to the west. We say the sun moves in the sky. Now, when you look deeper, you can find a different reality. And for centuries and millennia, it was thought that the sun moves in the sky, that the earth is flat, and it's not moving. And then, based on different thinking and analysis, it was discovered that actually it's the earth that's rotating around its axis that creates the sense of movement of the sun in the sky. And therefore, it was obvious for the scientists at that time that the sun is actually the center of 
the solar system and the Earth is rotating around it and the Earth is rotating around its axis and that's what happens. That is fine and that's fine that at the beginning there was a resistance against believing that actually the Earth is not flat and it's rotating because at the beginning one has doubts about it. What is really incredible is that it took 300 years, 300 years after those descriptions before actually it became commonly accepted that it's the Earth rotating around its axis rather than the sun moving in the sky. So new discoveries can take a while in order for them to be accepted when they are different from what our senses see, what our senses feel. So our senses and our habit of believing that all that there is is material life, is energy and physical existence and object is all there is, and that out of this comes suddenly something we call consciousness, which we experience as humans, is a very entrenched kind of feeling and belief in human tradition, culture, and society. That is to say, in modern kind of thinking and scientific thinking. Fortunately, the Vedic tradition has a different understanding of reality, and that is that ultimately consciousness is primary, and it is consciousness and its dynamics that lead to the experience and presence of a physical world. It's very hard to make the connection because how could it be if consciousness is a field that that field appears as physical matter? Well, this is what we would like to consider with you. And if we don't answer these questions profoundly, we'll be happy to discuss them more in discussions and questions and answers. Suffice it to say that our primary understanding is that consciousness is a field which means it is non-local in the same way as, for example, an electromagnetic field or a gravitational field is non-local. It's something that is not limited in space. The Earth exerts its gravitational field. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, they have their gravitational field. And that field is all over and extends beyond strict limited dimensions. It is like, in a simple way, the ocean and the waves. So you have the ocean and you have the waves on the surface of the ocean. You see the waves, they are localized. And if suppose you can see only the waves, then your mind and consciousness is limited on the existence of the waves. If you dive deep into the ocean, you discover that there is a field, that is the field, what we call a field, which is the entire ocean and which is able to create all these waves. And then you can, if you act from the deeper levels of the field, then you are able to create an effect on the whole surface of its expressions. Of course, it's a metaphor and metaphors have their limitations, but this is just to have a feeling of how the technology works. It works from the field level. Our consciousness, individual consciousness, which means our awareness, I am aware, you are here, you're aware, I'm, I'm talking, you are conscious of it. And you have different faculties of thinking, of intellect, of analyzing, of feeling about it, of seeing things through the senses. But all of this is happening 
in the field of consciousness. Because if we were not conscious, then neither you will understand, nor you will think, nor you will comprehend, nor you will feel. And what would it mean for you that anything exists, that you are maybe the most intelligent person or beloved person or wealthiest person in the universe? If you are not conscious, then all of these things don't matter. So that's why we say consciousness is primary. And that's why uh, beautifully Ramji, our, our uh, master of ceremony, has expressed that uh, UNESCO saying, which is everything starts in the mind and consciousness and awareness. Decisions for war, decisions for conflict, decisions to make a business, decisions to take a profession, to, to do something, all happens in the mind, all, all happens in consciousness. And we understand consciousness, not just human consciousness, but as a field that actually, again, manifests in different values. So how it works is on the basis of enlivening something, which is the basis of everything, the field of consciousness. And that in the Vedic literature is beautifully expressed in Vedantic terms and the fact that the field of consciousness is Satchit Ananda, that we are all that, that everything is that, Sarvam Kalvidam Brahm, Vedoham, and all of these values that are expressed, Aham Brahmasmi, are a reality in the scientific understanding today. I have had the chance and the fortune to work uh, under Maharishi's guidance on showing, for example, how Veda and Vedic literature are actually the blueprint of our own human physiology, which means even the physical reality of our body is constructed according to the structure and function of Veda and Vedic literature. This is a huge topic, but it's very dear to my heart. I can't miss the occasion to express it to you because it also demonstrates the profound relationship between consciousness as experienced by the rishis, and this is the Veda and the Vedic literature, and our even human body is constructed according to that, which means the shlokas, the mantras, the sutras, all of this are actually available in a physical form in our own body. And that's why human physiology is able to experience that unbounded field of consciousness and enliven it from its source and therefore create an effect that is non-local. Because that's the main key. How can people somewhere create an effect everywhere? And that is because of non-locality. And science, physics has discovered non-locality because in quantum mechanics, we know that things interact with each other at infinite distances, and that is called entanglement. We know that in the fine aspect of quantum mechanics, there is non-locality and that uh, there is uh, objects can be in different places at the same time. All of this is mind-boggling when we think about it from a classical perspective, but it is real. It is what science has discovered. And therefore, non-locality action at a distance is something physical, something that we know exists if you act from a deep level of understanding, a deep level of life. And therefore, 
what we are doing is acting from these deep levels. Since everything comes from that unified field, the field of consciousness, and since we as human beings have the capacity, because our physiology, our mind, our consciousness are already constructed according to the laws of nature, according to Veda, we are able to transcend, which means we are able to go beyond the surface value and go to the deepest level of our existence and the existence of everything in the universe, and that is the field of consciousness. And when we go there, we are able to create an effect that is, again, non-local and acting at a distance. Now, this is the basic idea of how it works, and the main thing is that it works. And this is what we have tried several times. In science, you have to repeat the experiment. For something to be scientific, it has to be reliable, it has to be repeatable, and it has to be systematic. Systematic means you do it in a system, in a specific way. Reliable means when you do it in that specific way, it produces the effect. And repeatable is that it doesn't produce the effect only once. You keep doing it, and it keeps producing the effect. These are the fundamentals of science. So what Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has given us is a system that is systematic. The teaching of how to go beyond the surface value to the field, to the depths of the field, is very systematic. And we have hundreds, thousands, many thousands of teachers around the world and many millions who practice this technology of transcending, of transcendental consciousness, that are taught in the same systematic way. And their effects are very systematic and very reliable and very repeatable. They lead to great improvements in human mind, more creativity, more intelligence, ability for students to have better grades at school. They have better health, reduction in bad habits, ability to feel healthy and happy, reduction in disease, reduction in hospital admissions. At the same time, improved behavior, improved relationships. And also what we have seen beyond that, the effect on the whole society, which is our interest and concern really right now for the 10,000 group. So we have studied this scientifically and in terms of group practice, uh, you will hear more about how it works in coherence of the brain and in how brain coherence can spread to different individuals in what is now a very new and important science which is called collective neuroscience and all of these factors is actually uh, being tested. All of these scientifically tested, repeatable, as we said, technologies have been tried again and again on a social level. The way it worked out is in the early 70s, Maharishi was teaching transcendental meditation in the world, and it was discovered that when 1% of the people in any town or city practice transcendental meditation, the crime was reduced in those cities and towns. So Maharishi had predicted that. That's why we call that the 1% effect or the Maharishi effect, the effect predicted by Maharishi, where a small number of people can create an effect in the whole society. 
as the knowledge advanced, Maharishi brought to light more deep knowledge of transcending and not only to transcend, which means if the mind is like an ocean, you dive deep into the self. So your mind is expanded. You have thoughts on the surface. Transcending means to go beyond the surface and go to the ocean itself. Again, that we calling the field, go to the essence of reality, to the field of being, which is pure consciousness. And you experience that. But what Maharishi has brought to light also is from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the system called Samnyama, which is the ability to have three things at the same time, three aspects of the Ashtanga Yoga, which are Dharana, Dhyan, Samadhi, together. But that is described by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, but people have lost the knowledge of how to do it. And Maharishi brought this back to light into exactly how to practice Samyama and enliven the field in a direct way. So not just go to the field, but stir the field, activate the field of consciousness from a profound way. So when he brought this knowledge and people started to do it, we found a new phenomenon, which is what we are demonstrating in Hyderabad. And that is when the square root of 1% of a population practices these advanced techniques of the cities, which include yogic flying, which means the body actually lifts in the, in the air and, of course, drops back uh, as long as you're not, uh, you know, <laughs> at a certain stage of development. That's why when these 10,000 will come, we'll have foams. For the, so they, when they fall back, they don't hurt themselves. And so they will be practicing this siddhis. The siddhi means uh, perfection uh, from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And they will be stirring the field, not only transcending, which is already a very important aspect and can have an effect. But if you transcend and act from that level, create an effect, a ripple from that level, then you have a powerful effect. And the scientists has look, have looked, we have all looked, I, I've done myself some research on that, uh, participated in the research, uh, had the fortune to do that in different places, and found that the formula is the square root of 1% of the population. So if you have a population of, let's say, 4 million people, the square root of 1% of that is 200 people. If the population is 8.1 billion, as is the population of our world, then 1% of that is 81 million, and the square root of 1% of that is 9,000 people. So 9,000 people should be enough to create the effect. Now you add a little safety factor of about 1,000 people, because maybe some will not have slept in the night, they'll come to program, they'll fall asleep, which is natural, that can happen. Hopefully they will all be lively and will be flying in the air and create the effect. And so this is how actually it works. That is why we have this number, and that is why we expect the effect to be worldwide, because it's the square root of 1% of the entire world population. So we're really sticking our neck in that one. You know, it's like we're talking about something and we're walking the walk, and we're telling you already that we expect something very positive to happen. So. I said there are two things. How does it work? We discussed that. 
Does it work? We have tried it many times, and we will hear from our colleagues, other scientists, more about how it works and does it work. And it has been really done, uh, this collective effect, 54 times, has been published in peer-reviewed journals, and the effects have shown reduction in conflict, reduction in crime, reduction in hospital admission, reduction in infant mortality, accidents of the road, and therefore this is truly a very profound positive effect that is the blessings of the Vedic tradition. And we are all blessed, and as scientists, you know, we realize and we pay homage to all of you, we pay homage to Bharat, for uh, this is your knowledge, this is the knowledge of Bharat, but it's a knowledge that is universal, that creates the effects universally everywhere, and when the numbers are right, when the practice is correct, then we have the results as expected. And one question I'm sure that will come, what do you expect will happen in the world? And I, I apprehend this question and, and I'll answer it right away. We expect positivity, some kind of softening, cooling, and positivity in the world. Exactly how nature works, how the positivity will be manifesting, in what part of the world we are as much as all of you, hopefully, waiting to see. And we will just watch and the scientists will be there in an unbiased way, not expecting anything, just checking what happens and comparing how the numbers of people flying together compare to the changes on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, we want this to be permanent. That is very important because our previous experiences have shown us that whenever we stop this program, gradually things go back to where they were before. It's like you bring the light, darkness disappears immediately. Or it starts disappearing. As your light gets stronger and stronger, the darkness can disappear completely. But if you stop the light, then things will be back into what we call ignorance or darkness, which is ignorant ways of dealing with affairs. And that is, unfortunately, what might happen. Hopefully, we will stay as a group. Hopefully, this knowledge will be picked up. And we have great hopes that in India today, uh, there is great interest. And Bharat India will hold together the groups and uh, create groups uh, like that and maintain them per permanently for all life owners to be continuously in a progressive, holistic, and coherent way. Thank you so much, Dr. Neda. This was brilliant and such an important message. And we will open now for questions from your side. Thank you very much. My name is Sagar. You know, my question goes on. Uh, India is a very poor country where billions of people are in the state of poverty. Meditation is a subject for affluent, educated, and hardly people are educated. So for a lower strata of society, what is your, you know, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has got a big name. So I would like to ask you, the people who are uh, right in the uh, downtrodden state, what is your message to them? So that uh, these are all media people, they can write, 
and they can benefit from it. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for this question. We would like to clarify that transcendental meditation doesn't require any previous knowledge, philosophy, or background, or science. We have presented the scientific background, which can be complicated uh, in certain ways, you know, physics, uh, quantum mechanics, and because we have to understand the mechanism of action. So, for example, if you want to have light in your room, you can just flip the switch and anybody can do that. We don't have to have any background of any knowledge of how electricity is produced, how it is channeled to your house, and the resistance of the wires and how it is done. So there are two things. There is the theory, the effect, and the study of it, the engineering part. And there is the technical part. That's why we call it technology. It's a technology of consciousness that children, even from the age of four or five, can start practicing. And people with any knowledge, background, or no knowledge, no background at all, can practice it. It's a very simple, innocent technique. And it will enliven creativity and intelligence and that is why it is very important for everyone to actually use it. You know, there is the Maslow pyramid, Abraham Maslow saying that first you have to look for your food and then you can think and then and then and then at what point you are able to, to transcend and have self-actualization. What Maharishi Maheshwaki has taught to the world and has shown scientifically is that if you transcend first, which means you go to samadhi first, and this is available to every human being, then your creativity increases, your ability to find ways to gain your livelihood and to be wealthy increases. So you start from the top, enliven your awareness and your consciousness, and that will give you all the power and energy and intelligence to achieve your goals in life. Whatever you said, you said for an educated and those who are, you know, learning physics and other things. I am asking a meditation for a common man. So if you can enlighten me on that subject, I'll be grateful to you. Yeah, for the common man, I'll say, do you want to be able to achieve your goals? Do you want to be able to be happy? Do you want to be able to sleep better? Do you want to be able to have better relation with your family? Says yes. Then I say, close the eyes, take this mantra, do it like this, and then do it 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, and come back and tell me how you feel. And the science shows us that when they come back to tell you, they'll tell you, I am better, I am clearer, I am more intelligent, I am able to fulfill my life. And many would say, transcendental meditation saved my life. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Anil. When you are listening to a demonstration or a talk, closed versus the open eyes. So we find, as per the demo, like there are some differences. So what do you suggest? Like you listen and understand in the closed eyes when you are in a room where, where you are being addressed? When you close your eyes, the coherence automatically starts in the occipital lobe of the brain because your attention is no more on the outside. It's very rare to find the coherence spreading to the front of the part. So I want to 
highlight that when the study was done uh, with uh, the young lady, it was picking up on the front of the brain, which doesn't happen except if you really transcend and go down into the settled state of consciousness. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Uh, my name is Abhishek from Top Story English newspaper. And uh, my question is related to consciousness of mind. And it's, it is basically related to astrological science and numerology. Uh, basically, sir, I want to know that uh, does reading uh, horoscope regularly in newspaper impact on the consciousness of mind and regularly reading it translate it any connection with the planets? Because uh, 11 members of the family committed suicide in Noida. A, a complete member of the family committed suicide in uh, Delhi, Burari area, which was basically being practiced in superstitious practice or blind beliefs, and uh, they died in a house. So uh, my question is from astrological horoscope reading, does it really impact mind and connect any energy with the planets in the world? So that something works doesn't mean everything works and doesn't mean everything is correct to do, you know. So we have to be careful. That's why we have subjected this technique to rigorous scientific study now for 80 years or so, and therefore repeatedly try to see what works, what doesn't work. And in this case, we have all positive effects and no side effects or, you know, problems. My name is uh, Rohit Sushodhya. I am from Drug Today Medical Times. Mm -hmm. My question is, uh, can you explain science behind meditation? And the other question is, is there any study that can prove that it can end violence and bring peace in the world? I'd like to add some, something which is a clarification. This 10,000 people are not coming to sit and discuss world peace or talk about it and, you know, say, oh, it's wonderful to love each other. It's, it's great. And, you know, we should create peace. It's not a demonstration to say, you know, we take banners and walk in the streets and say, you should have this, you should have this and get, uh, you know, media covering in that way. It is really people who are going to just sit and close the eyes not even talk to each other, not even, you know, there'll be discussions of from time to time for knowledge sake, but the effect will be produced from just transcending, transcending and being in the self. And then the effect is created on the level of nature, not on the level of convincing, not on the level of compromise, not on the level of agreements, not on the level of fighting, on the level of being. So what we have is to change the collective awareness, to change the field of being under which all these people in all these countries are working and which is nowadays stressed and that's why there is conflict. And we want to cool that down, actually effectively cool down the collective consciousness of the world and then the results will happen spontaneously. So there will always be somebody who will say, I met with this one and I met with that one and we made an agreement and we decided to stop the war. And you will see, oh, okay, they are the one who created the peace. They are not, they are just reacting to the collective awareness, to the collective consciousness. And they are only a mirror of how the collective awareness is. And so 
Of course, the results will be on the surface. There will be some meetings, there will be some decisions. Somebody will come and be the champion of, of well-being, you know, and all of that. And some mechanism have to happen on the surface. But that thing which is on the surface, which is the wave, is motivated by the quality of the ocean, how the ocean is. Is the ocean peaceful, calm, or is it turbulent and stressed? Is there a connection with concentrating on the breath or, for that matter, concentrating on anything during meditation? It's a technique you have you know, to learn it in order to see how it works. It uses the natural tendency of the mind. You know, what's the natural tendency of the mind? What are we, why the mind thinks? It thinks because it's searching for more fulfillment, more happiness, or getting rid of strain, getting rid of things that are limiting. We always want to be more creative. We want more love. We want more happiness. We want better things to hear, better things to, uh, to think about. You know, if you're reading a book and your eyes are going through the book, but the book is not very interesting and some music starts next door, your mind suddenly goes to the music even if your eyes are still going through the words, but you, you just think you're reading, but your attention has gone to the music because it is more charming. So the shift of attention of the mind from one situation to another happens completely effortlessly. There is no effort when you suddenly find your mind on the music and your intention was to read the book, you didn't do anything. It's just something more charming attracted you. So you go there. So that tendency of the mind is what we use in transcendental meditation. Usually we are directed to the outward world. We are, through our senses, projects us outside. What we do in transcendental meditation is tell you there is something deeper within you that is more charming than anything you can have, which is your ocean of being, your own inner self. You didn't know that, but that is the reality. And when you dive within, the mind naturally wants to go there. It settles down. Okay, now you say, how does it settle down? Do you force it? The more you try to force it, the less it will do it. The more you try to manipulate it, the less it will go there. So what you learn through transcendental meditation is how to dive without doing anything. It sounds complicated, but it's so simple. That's why Ram said even children learn it and they don't need to have any background of knowledge or philosophy or anything. So hi, I'm Neha Mishra from PTI. As you know, India is a very diverse country. Mm -hmm. So everyone has a different mindset and each mind work in their own according, like on other way. So do you really think it will be a very long impact because the technique, as you told already, that a four-year kid also can be can practice it. So the, I want to know about the lasting period. Do we need to practice it in a frequent way? or Because we know as a human, we cannot stick to something which will benefit our like peace and mental. So we'll, of course, break that relation. So I just wonder if the period of the, it will last for long or it will be a, like we have to practice it after a duration of time, each duration of time. It's so charming that people look forward to meditating. 
You know, people imagine, oh, I have to do this. It's part of what I need to do. I should be right. I should be good. And I should meditate. I should concentrate. I should focus. I should do that. I should do that. And it's like another new thing that one has to do. Whereas transcendental meditation, people run for it. They just wait for the time to do it. Because this is the time when you actually experience joy and pleasure and well-being and settled peacefulness. So it's something you look forward to doing rather than something that is an imposition that you really have to do as an additional thing for your well-being. So uh, you have brilliantly measured how transcendental meditation affects people, how it affects society, how it brings crime down. My question was that did you also measure the effect of the yajna that the thousand pundits are doing? And did you compare? And the reason I'm asking is because when so meditation is very personal, there's one thing that you're doing. Now, whenever you do a yajna, it's very specific. So this is why I'm asking, are you losing the effect or are you getting the effect? And have you measured it? For the yajna, as you say, it's very specific. And it depends on the circumstances, on the planetary system. And so there is always Jyotish involved where we study the conditions. And then the pundits uh, have technologies that are from the Vedic tradition uh, to perform the yajna. And uh, then the effects are coming specifically. We have, if you like, a lot, a huge amount of anecdotal kind of results where people are happy and they get the response to their request. And that's why they keep coming and they, it, it keeps happening. And so we haven't done yet a systematic controlled study for the Yagya because it's complicated to do it in terms of you do something and then you compare to a control group who didn't do something because of the specificity of it. But the collected effect which we are collecting is extremely encouraging. So that's how much I could say. From a very strict scientific perspective, no, we haven't you know, done a publishable research. Whereas on transcendental meditation, which is uh, holistic and not specific in the sense that it produces the effects globally uh, by transcending, uh, we have studied it on many, many uh, specific aspects. So itself, the practice is not specific for like when people transcend or when people, even when we are going to do the 10,000 group in Hyderabad, there will not be a request from the participants to have a specific sankalpa in their mind. They just transcend and they know how to act from that field of the transcendent. So they're enlivening the ocean of consciousness. And that is what has a holistic coherence creating effect in society. And so the specific effects we will measure but the procedure itself is non-specific in that sense. And the collective practice is like a yajna in a sense. It is not a procedural yajna, which means there is no chanting and there is no procedure, but it's a technology of consciousness. And this has been researched very carefully. 
May I just add a little bit of my humble knowledge on this sub-topic that she has raised? Uh, specifically on Yagya in India, a lot of scientists have been doing research on a very important subject, which is a human mind is affected not just by the wrong food, but the unhealthy environment too. So this global warming and the, the, the pollution of our rivers and you know the dying of trees, etc. So very specific, even in Hyderabad and in West, Delhi, uh, West India, a lot of research has been done to show the effect of yagya on climate control, climate change. And uh, we have been like <laughs> working, I happen to come from the land of Karma, uh, Karmakanda, which is Kampilla, if you've heard about it. All the Vedas and the Upanishads were written there. Having that in my DNA, I got automatically involved in this. Second aspect that I would like to throw some light on when she said the difference between a yagya and, a, and, and the, the TM that you're talking about, I think both are very much dependent on the quality of sound vibrations. The words you speak, how you speak, because the frequency of sound affects us in a much, much, uh, uh, you know, profound way than we actually realize. So both these things are actually very much correlated in the Indian system of Vedic technologies. So you have to combine the meditation along with the yagya to have the effect of the yagya or to have the effect of the meditation. This is my humble understanding because I work on uh, reviving for 20 years Vedic Gyan Vigyan. Because everything that is in the Vedas, you know, I'm sure very well than me, is all science. If only we know how to decode it. Thank you. That's beautiful. Yes, actually, this is Maharishi's teaching. And that's why our program of Yagya depends on first transcending. You know, because the sound that can be produced can be produced like our talking. And that's on the surface level of sound. And the vibrations remain on the surface. Because consciousness, as we say, is like an ocean. And it has waves on the surface. These are the outer expressions of the ocean. But consciousness is much deeper. And if you act on the surface level, you only produce effect on the surface level. So our pandits, uh, we have Giriji, or he has a uh, huge... Ramachari Girish Varmaji, who is with us, who runs the programs here in, in India uh, in, in a very wonderful way in the Brahmastan of India. Um, and uh, the pundits have to transcend because if you transcend and you produce an effect from the transcendental level, then you have a very powerful overarching effect. Now, it's good you mentioned the environment and all that. So I said we don't have a published scientific research because as a scientist, I have to stick to the scientific method. But we have a lot of research. For example, we have looked at the number of hurricanes that happened in the United States, uh, the number of damage, and compared this to the practice of cities and transcendental meditation and the performance of Yagya. And we have found very very great correlation, which is a huge thing, actually. So we are collecting the studies as we go along. And uh, the city program 
is uh, that Maharishi has brought to light is transcending and then acting from the transcendent, from the transcendental level. So it's like you want to create waves. If you sit on the waves and start tapping the waves, you create very little waves. In a small pond, you can create very little vibrations. If in a bigger pond or a lake, you can have bigger waves. If you are the ocean, and if your ocean is infinite, then when you shake that ocean from the bottom, then you have non-local tremendous effects on the surface. And so the idea and the practice is transcend and from that level perform your action. As Krishna told Arjuna on the battlefield, yoga sta kuru karmani. So for the most effective action, you have to be established in yoga and the self and the transcendent. I just wanted to add, I did an experiment myself with Yajya and specifically Agnihotra. And uh, in the Vedas, it is said that there are many types of electricities present. And through particular Yajyas, you can capture that electricity. Now, there's no, it's Vidyut or whatever you might want to call it in Sanskrit. So through Agnihotra, you capture certain um, currents, electricities, and you bring it down to the level of earth. And it starts to transform you. And the transformation that it does is that our aura, which may be damaged, starts getting fulfilled with proper, it becomes whole, we become wholesome. So at that point, when we start doing meditation, the effects are much better. One of the things that I observed is that I used to do it on my terrace and I would not even be regular, but I did Agnihotra, which is exactly at the time of sunset. I, I light uh, the, the havan and I put, um, give the oblations. And I had 10, 15 potted plants. Those potted plants, started giving me so many fruits that I couldn't consume myself. So I had to distribute it. So I saw a physical effect in the um, area around me. So the humans would definitely benefit. And if you could mix that, any of the yagyas done regularly with transcendental meditation, I think the effect might be spectacular. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. We'll add this to our scientific research. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, this kind of experience is fabulous, and that's what we need to keep collecting, uh, because, you know, the scientists want to say it happened many times by different circumstances and compare with trying to do something else. So that's the nature of science today. But, uh, of course, this is fabulous. Uh, so, first of all, um, Maharishiji, countless bow-downs to you for taking the effort, making so much of effort to really create love, peace, and harmony on Mother Earth. We really need it, and not everybody is able to do it. So thank you for taking that responsibility and giving us a platform to really come together and work together. Um, wish to understand deeper, when we talk about chanting mantras, in our we are blessed in India that we have the Vedic mantras with us. And for the mantra that we chant, even if we don't connect, but if we chant those mantras, we see the effect happening in our life, right? Because the frequency and vibration of those words are so high 
that we are able to align with that, right? And it helps us to come out of our frequency and vibration as human being. So right now, uh, the study that we have been doing and we understood is that we are in third dimension. And uh, the frequency that human beings carry is in the third dimension. So when we meditate and when we chant mantras, are we reaching out to higher frequency and vibration of fourth dimension and above? Could you help me understand that, please? See, there is one ocean of being that is pure consciousness. So that is the absolute field of existence. If you can imagine that before anything was, there was one field of consciousness. And it is that field of consciousness interacting with itself that creates all the layers that we see on the physical world. How this happens is simple in one way and complicated in another. Because it's the self-referral nature of consciousness looking at itself that creates diversity. Marishi says it creates the three values of observer, process of observation and of observed, which are the necessary ingredients of any conscious experience. When you say, I am conscious, what does it mean? It means there is a me that is aware of an object. Even if I am aware of myself, I am the object of myself. So this creates diversity within the unity of consciousness. And that diversity leads to further diversities and this is how you get all the layers of the appearance, which means when you look at things from a limited perspective, from a broader perspective, broader, broader, broader perspective, so consciousness has within it all possibilities, and then they manifest in the universe. And these are what we call the layers. So if you look at it from a scientific perspective, you can say there is the unified field, then there is the quantum fields, and then the quantum mechanics, and then there is the localized objects, particles, atoms, molecules, and all of that. And now the dimensions that are described in physics can be 11 dimensions or can be the four dimensions of space and time. And so talking about dimensions, really from a Vedic perspective, is really talking about which levels of manifestation. For example, on the sound level, on the speech level, you have um, para, uh, pasyanti, madhyama, and baikari. So the baikari will be the level of speech as we hear it. The madhyama is on, uh, on the level of thought, uh, clear thoughts. Uh, and then this way you go to feelings and then to transcendental value. So you can say also these are dimensions. So when you talk of dimensions, it is from the para, which is the transcendental value, that you can influence all the other values more effectively. That is why we talk about transcending. Transcending is going to the most profound dimension. You can call it the first dimension or the seventh dimension, depending on how you like to count. But expressions in nature is layers in layers. And all the layers are real. 
but they are connected. And the deeper you are, the more you can influence the surface values. I am with the Manoj Nesri. I am the advisor in the Ministry of Ayush. Uh, I would like to share the experience that we have during the COVID saga. Uh, the All India Institute of Ayurveda is the 200-bedded hospital and the PG Institute here in Delhi. And during COVID, the entire hospital was converted into a COVID hospital. We treated the patients only with Ayurveda. At that time, we used to conduct the yagya every day over there. The Dhanvantri yagya so was there. And we are happy to share with the audience that not a single patient died because of the COVID. So all 100% COVID patients, they were cured with Ayurveda and this Yajna. So probably this is the actually the effect of Yajna. At the same time, uh, Vajji will also share the experience of the plague saga. So during the plague, which was there in the Surat, and it was at a very mega scale. So that time, Vajji and Vajji's father, so they actually promoted the Yajna in the entire Surat city. And because of that, the plague epidemic, so it was wiped out. So the yakya has a, a lot of effect on the uh, viruses, on the diseases, on the mentality of the uh, people around over there. So it's a holistic effect. Absolutely. And so the yakya is action in accordance with natural law, we can say, if we want to uh, you know, see it from the broadest perspective. And action in accordance with natural law can be you do an action on the surface value, and if it's correct, if it's in tune with laws, then it creates the effect. So you can create effect by acting. You can create effect by talking. You can create the effect by thinking. You can create the effect by being from the level of being. And all of these are different dimensions. So when we are here, of course, it's not a technical yagya as we understand the yagya, but it's a yagya. It's already an assembly of people who connect their thought together with a certain purpose. It creates an effect on us. We all learn, we all grow, we all analyze, we come out with a new perspective. But there is, of course, the, the effect of the, the supreme yagya, which is being in the transcendent, and being able to produce the right effect from that. So the city program is also like a yagya because it is learning how to think from the level of the transcendent. On the level of sound, you know, this is really beautiful because I personally had the fortune to work with uh, the guidance of His Holiness Maharishi Mahesh Yogi on the Vedic sounds, the sounds of the Veda themselves which is Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, Atharva Veda, all the Veda, Nyaya, Vaisheshya, Kasankya, Yoga, Karma, Mimansa, Vedanta, Shiksha, Kalpa, Vyakara, Nirok, Chan, Jyotish, all of them, the 40 aspects, which Maharishi has organized as a perfect science. And what Maharishi said is that these are the laws of nature. The Vedic sounds are actually the laws of nature, which means Whatever the scientists are trying to understand today as how the world works, how the universe works, based on laws, what are the laws? And Maharishi said, these laws are expressed in the Veda in terms of vibration and sound. 
And he said to me that, uh, as he said to everyone, that Veda says, Aham Brahmasmi, Sarvam Kalvidam Brahm. I am totality, I am that wholeness. And even other belief systems, other religions, they say that humans were made in the image of God. So he said, if Veda is natural law, is the laws of nature, and if the humans are also having embodied within them the laws of nature, so Veda and the humans must look alike, must be the same. And so how could they be the same? And he said, it is in the actual structure of the human body and the function of the human body should be the same as the structure and function of the Veda and Vedic literature. So he asked that I do research because I was neurophysiologist and scientist of the brain and the physiology, that I compare the structure of Veda with the structure of the body. And I didn't know how where to start, but of course he guided me. I said, should I learn Sanskrit and start studying you know, the Vedic literature? He said, no, no, you don't need to do that. All you need to know is the functions, and I'll tell you the functions. For example, Nyaya is the lamp at the door, and that is what sees the specific and sees the holistic. So the lamp at the door, it sees inside the house and it sees outside the house. So the specific values and the holistic values are enlightened by Nyaya. That is the function of Nyaya. And then he said, okay, now this is the function of Nyaya. You should find a place in the brain or in the body, in the nervous system, which connects the specific to the holistic. And in order to prove that, you have to look at the structure. So I started seeing, because I know the brain uh, you know, really well, this was my specialty. I know that there is a place in the brain called the thalamus. It's in the middle of the brain, and it receives all the information from the sensory system. So when you touch something, it goes to the thalamus. When you look at something, it goes to the salamus. When you smell something, when you hear something, it is guided towards that structure, hearing, touching, feeling, and all these inputs, which are specific values, they go to the thalamus. And then the salamus sends them to the brain, to the cortex, where they get built up as a holistic structure. For example, when we see a flower, we don't think about it, but actually, there are millions of photons that come reflected from the flower that go through the retina, and they are completely independent one from the other. They are just hitting, hitting the retina in different ways. These are the specific values. And those specific values get channeled to the thalamus, and the thalamus sends them to the cortex, the brain, the upper part of the brain, which then assembles them together and tells you this is a flower. So the holistic value of a flower versus the specific values of the information of light that comes reflected from the flower. That is in the thalamus. So I said, well, the thalamus must be nyaya because the thalamus sees the specific and connects to the holistic.
So that is great. Already it's fabulous. But what is amazing is that in Nyaya, there are 16 different principles that are the basis of the whole Nyaya. They are Pramana, Prameya, Samshaya, etc. 16 different principles. And each one of them has a function, has a specific function. What is very interesting is that the thalamus has 16 different nuclei, exactly like Nyaya. And each one of those has the same function is one of these nuclei, which means collection of neurons in the thalamus, has exactly the same function as the 16 parts of Nyaya, Pramana, Prameya, Samshaya, etc. And so this is how the brain, the thalamus, is exactly a replica of Nyaya in terms of its function and in terms of its structure. And that is very important because it shows the exactness of the correlation. Now, this is one example only out of many, many examples, actually 40 different parts that show that we are a replica of the Veda. So the Veda is the blueprint which makes our body. That is why when we say Vedoham, I am the Veda is not just some nice philosophical inspirational statement. We physically are like the Veda. So the Veda is incarnated in us. It is present within us. And I'm saying this because now we have what we call Vedic sound, Maharishi Vedic sound technology, Vedic vibration technology, where we use those sounds that correspond to the different parts of the body and we can align them back with their original design and create that healing. So that brings to yagya, to the actual origin of yagya, because it is not just the physical body, but also the structure of the universe and the relationship between the outer environment and the inner environment, the planets and the stars, they are actually present in our nervous system and their function. And so when we produce a sound, we are actually changing the vibrations inside the nervous system, inside the physiology, and creating balance back again. So there is a very strong scientific foundation for the effect of sound and vibration on the influence on the universe and on our directly on our physiology. And this we are also researching. In fact, I have personally published scientific research that shows the effects of these Vedic sounds and vibrations on healing the body and healing uh, disease. And it's corroborated by your beautiful uh, experience and experiment. So we should keep collecting those data and collecting the, the understanding, the theory behind it so that we have a proper logic of how it happens, why it happens, in order to be able to convince uh, the modern world, which is very pragmatic and very objective, why these subjective techniques, these mental techniques, are actually creating the effects. Uh, my question is, uh, you know, the 
individual body is a body, mind, and soul. And soul is sometimes called an infinite. So it can go to a super soul. It's a, a, you know, a Vedic subject, and they teach like this. So my question goes on, is there any science you have studied in Maharishi effect that a soul can be transcended to a universal, you know, universal wisdom or a cosmic wisdom? Now, the question appears to be a very, uh, you know, imaginative. But I would like to ask you, is there any science in which we can find out what is the universal wisdom, what is the cosmic wisdom, and, you know, reaching to the God is a source of infinite. Because when God and infinite, they are synonymous. So if you say that we are reaching to the infinite or a God, is it possible as far as your investigation goes on? I'm sorry for the uh, long question. No, that, that's very good. If you want to go into the infinite values, infinities and all that, you get into mathematics really and in terms of science because physics doesn't deal with infinities. It gets stuck with infinities. When it reach, you know, when an equation leads to infinity, it can't be resolved. So it becomes a mathematical kind of situation. And mathematics is a field of logic, a field of thinking. So what we have in terms of science is the study of what the universe is made of and how do we get into the ultimate reality of what the universe is made of. And this actually leads us to a field which is a field of infinity in a sense. And that is through going from, you know, the object on their surface, then if you take the human body to the cells, the cells to the molecules, molecules to the atoms, atoms to the elementary particles, and then you get to the fields, electromagnetic field, gravitational field, weak force, strong force. As I think you heard from Dr. Hagelin, I think the tape was shown. But if you didn't, it's, it was shown. So there are these different layers. And as you go to the fields, imagine the field again is like an ocean and the particles are like the waves on the ocean. And there is really, this is where physics got us uh, in terms of searching for the ultimate. So the ultimate is a unified field, which means there is one field which is all permeating. And that is from strict physics perspective. Now physics, when it studies the unified field, it studies it mathematically because you cannot put the unified field in a cyclotron or in a, in a, you know, in a lab and study it because it's infinite. So it's beyond even the ability to measure it directly, but you can get to it mathematically and you see what it is. That is one level. Another level is philosophy in philosophy. You can have what is ultimate reality? Is this energy material or is it consciousness? And there you have since time immemorial this discussion whether it's a duality of reality, there is something physical plus something spiritual, or there is something only physical and the physical creates consciousness, 
or there is consciousness as a primary and consciousness then somehow appears as matter. The Vedic and Vedantic perspective is that consciousness is primary. And then we have to explain how consciousness appears as matter. And this is what Maharishi has helped to produce. And this is my latest book was all to explain how consciousness can appear as matter and the different layers of matter and the logic behind it. So you can take it then from a logic perspective, mathematical perspective, physics perspective, and all general kind of understanding perspective. And this is how you can reach to infinities. Now, the bottom line is going to be, how can you use it? And this is where transcendental meditation comes. Transcendental meditation is the technology of using that in the best possible way. So when you transcend, then you create an effect on the mind, on the heart, on the body, on the physiology, on the health, and on society. That means you act from that field and you systematically prove that it creates an effect on your living, on your quality of life, you as an individual, and the society as a whole. And this is where you prove objectively pragmatically, objectively, scientifically, empirically, that actually consciousness has an effect. So all of these, what we have heard about yagya and sound, what we have heard about transcending and all the research is a proof that consciousness can transform matter and can transform collectivity. And that's what we are doing in the 10,000 group in Hyderabad. So you are using a word consciousness uh, very, uh, you know, frequently. So is consciousness a fission or a fusion? Consciousness is, it's a non-material, infinite. How you uh, define it? Consciousness is uh, the ultimate aspect of reality. Pure being, pure consciousness is non-material. So it's not a physical reality. So it's not a fusion or a fission. It's the essence of everything. It's your awareness is an expression of consciousness. And the whole universe is an expression of consciousness. So consciousness is actually all there is. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.